0: centuries-old mystery.
1: A horror show played out on social media. This is Comfort in Death and Darkness. welcome to Comfort and Death and Darkness. It's been about six months since the release of the last episode and, to be perfectly honest, I had no idea that scripting these episodes in this way would take up so much time and take so much work. However, I'm going to do my damnedest to make sure that I get these out in a timely manner from now on. That is to say, in way less time than six months between episodes. Even one month would be better, so let's just aim for that for now. So let's crack on with the originally scheduled broadcast. Tonight, Comfort in Death and Death in Darkness brings you two more stories. The first one is a little more lighthearted than usual, before the second one absolutely destroys your faith in humanity. Did you expect anything else from me? So without further ado, here comes your first story of the show. This story is a mystery that goes back hundreds of years, and you know what, I'll let them tell you about it. Introducing my best friend, Super Cubby.
0: Let's be honest. This world that we live in is... it's pretty odd. And every now and again, the strange heckin' world that we live in throws in up another curveball. Something else that defies logic. You hear of legends, myths, and stories, and we just reside ourselves as seeing them as just those things. Just stories. But then, a story involving potential buried treasure, Shakespearean manuscripts, and even the Holy Grail comes along and all of a sudden, well, you capture my attention a little bit extra. That is until, well, you realize that this uh, potential treasure, well, we're hunting it for over 200 years. And there's a curse on top of all that too. That's when things get a little more tricky. Hey, everybody, I'm Super Cubby and this is the story of the Oak Island mystery. The original going-ons of Oak Island date back further than 200 years, even as much as 400 years, but the 200-year marker is used because it indicates when the first recorded movement on Oak Island occurred. In 1795, the stories began. The stories were just told enough to the point that they were eventually documented, so we have written proof that they occurred. Two such written accounts came in 1862, in 1864. The former appeared in the Liverpool transcript, and the latter in the Colonist of Halifax. These were almost 70 years after the initial discovery. Nowadays, it would just be straight on social media. People would be heckin' tweeting about it. You know, Aunt Susie would post up a uh, blow up your Instagram feed about the local Oak Island treasure that was found. But back then, word of mouth was a powerful thing. The first book to actually include the Oak Island story was Judge Mather B. de Brace's History of Londonburg County from 1870. As publications of the island became more and more frequent, the secrets of Oak Island lore were becoming more and more interesting, and people were taking notice, which made more and more people want to go. But why was everyone so sure that there was something there? Why was everyone so hell-bent on figuring out what the mystery was? Well, there was something there known as the Oak Island Money Pit. This pit was actually discovered by men named Daniel McGuinness, John Smith, and Anthony Vaughn, allegedly back in the year 1795. The Money Pit got its name from, well, exactly that. They thought money was in the pit. Finally, so much money has been poured into searching for the Money Pit that its name has actually flipped its meaning, meaning the Money Pit is actually, well, a Money Pit. The pit itself was surrounded by three trees, Beneath the branches, one tree was a layer of flagstones. Lifting these and digging down about 10 feet revealed the platform of oak logs. It is believed that there was a bunch of platforms and markers left to indicate the 10 foot intervals, all the way down to about 90 feet below the ground. This is where there was the discovery of a stone with strange symbols cut into its surface. This stone was face down on top of what was believed to be the final layer of oak logs. This was really the first thing they found in the money pit. The crew had already made it this far and they weren't about to quit. The discovery was a good sign, so they progressed. Once they started to go further down, they noticed that the earth was much softer and water was present this far down in the pit. A few more feet, the water level began to rise. A few more, the same thing. They started removing one tub of water for every two tubs of earth. At 98 feet deep, They discovered a damn near impenetrable substance. This thing was bound to the sides of the pit, it wouldn't move. Some thought it to be wood, others thought it was the chest, some very valuable treasure. Before they could bust through it, the excavators called it a night in high spirits, excited for tomorrow's discovery. Sadly, when they came back in the morning, there was 60 feet deep of water that was discovered in the pit. This wasn't going to deter them though. They began using buckets to try and empty the water even further from the pit, but every bucket filled and taken out of the pit did not change the level of water, not even in the slightest. Later, it would be discovered that the water was coming from a flood tunnel. That means a trap was discovered. New explorers had sprung it while digging down and it was set by the original architects of the pit. This begs the question, did the original architects have a way to turn off the water and if so, how? not to mention all the obstacles that the original architects put in the way between the ground and the bottom of the money pit. But this begs an even further threatening question. What if what is ever at the bottom of the money pit was never meant to be discovered? What if these traps and these threats were laid in place to deter but also eliminate potential explorers? For information and a diagram of what the money pit looks like, Check out ComfortInDeathAndDarkness.com And if the name uh, has any indication, it's going to be a lot of death and darkness on there. But before we travel further down the money pit, what about that strange stone with those weird symbols on it? Discovered in 1804 between the 80 and 90 feet level of the pit, this stone was said to resemble dark Swedish granite with an olive tinge about it. Whatever it was, the stone was not common to the area. That means someone brought it there. It's also thought that the stone was fairly large in size. The inscription is believed to consist of a bunch of triangles, squares, circles, arrows, and overlapping lines and dots. ComfortInDeathInDarkness.com shows you clearly what this inscription looks like. But that being said, it's just so weird. There were no tracings or rubbings that exist or survive that we know of, and it's bizarre considering the stone had allegedly been viewed by hundreds of people. This is because the stone actually laid on display. In the window of a Halifax merchant store for quite some time. It was displayed in the window to draw up interest about the area and generate some sales, but imagine how valuable that stone is now. In 1949, Reverend A.T. Kempton provided us with the most famous and most widely acceptable translation of this inscription. Allegedly, the stone reads, 40 feet below, 2 million pounds are buried. More recently, it was discovered by a New York researcher named Zena Halper, who specialized in the Knights Templar. They found something they described as le It was an incomplete document that does appear to corroborate the translation made by A.T. Kempton. You just need to transcribe the symbols into French first. So, that being said, 40 feet below holds 2 million pounds? Surely not. Without knowing the year for which the stone was placed in the Money Pit, 2 million pounds back then would be worth immeasurable amounts today, when adjusted for inflation. With the discovery of this stone at 90 feet down, at the inscription stating that the potential treasure was 40 feet down, then surely all the excavators had to do was dig 130 feet, right? Well, yeah, but remember the flood tunnels suddenly made this extremely difficult. The trap that the original architects made was set to spring once a certain depth of the tunnel was exposed an airlock would be breached, allowing a flood tunnel to flood the pit with a steady stream of water until the pit was filled with water up to tide level. At first, the searchers thought that this water could have just been groundwater. After all, if you dig down far enough, you'll find water. I mean, that's what wells are. But this wasn't any old groundwater. This was seawater. Once the searchers discovered that this was salt water, they set about trying to find where it was coming from. This search led them to Smith's Cove. There, they found a simple, yet well-engineered system of box drains with man-made filters consisting of coconut fiber, eelgrass, and beach stones. So, a trap was set. Over the years since the flood tunnel discovery, clay and dyes were used to prove that the tunnel was connecting the sea to the money pit. Since 1795, there have been 19 sets of explorers attempting to crack the mystery of Oak Island. Some were companies, some were families, some were just single individuals. To this day, nothing that could be considered buried treasure has been found. There's definitely been a fair share of theories though. Who left the potential treasure there? Well, one such theory is pirates did. Captain William Kidd spent many years pirating the East Indies, the Indian and China Seas. On his way back to the West Indies, Kidd's said to have made a detour north before finally arriving in a port in Boston. Did Kidd stop at Oak Island, drop off some loot, and said, see you later? There would have been plenty of time for him to shoot up up to Nova Scotia, hide his treasure, and head for Boston. Two issues appear with this theory though. The first being that the pirates weren't exactly the saving type. They are more likely to spend their loot than keep it for a rainy day. Not to mention that the chances of pirates being able to bury their treasure in such a complex way with a trap and everything, to a point where absolutely no one could find it. Just so... Uh, anti-pirate. Then you have a character by the name of Sir Francis Bacon. Yes, the name sounds yummy, but Bacon is actually fascinated with codes and ciphers. His loyal followers also say that he was an actual author of Shakespeare's works, as well as the works of other writers. If Bacon had that much of a galaxy brain, he might have been able to put this trap in place and and hide his loot as well. Uh, Bacon seems a little bit arrogant here, but even he was known to have apparently said, I'll be known for who I really am long after my death. I mean, he's either got a hugely inflated ego, or this dude's hiding something. In fact, he was even an initiated member of the Knights Templar. There's also, of course, that Bacon's servant and understudy Thomas Bushwell was known for successful recovering of a number of flooded mines with the assistance of Cornish miners. So he knew his way around a flood tunnel. Uh, that's not an innuendo. The flood tunnels on Oak Island bear a striking resemblance to the Cornish mines. Is it at all possible that Bacon, Bushwell, and a fleet of Cornish miners went to Oak Island, built this elaborate money pit, had something hidden in it, and then filled it back up again? trapping it along the way? Speaking of the Order of the Knights Templar, it's believed that when King Philip IV of France was in deep, deep debt, he ordered the arrest of key Templar leaders. The Pope would follow King Philip soon after and decree that all Templars should be arrested and their assets seized. It's said that in response to this, many of the Templars actually fled to Scotland seeking refuge. With them, they took priceless religious treasures. One such treasure was the Holy Grail. Is it possible that the remaining Knights of the Templars sailed west, burying the Grail on Oak Island? Only time will tell once the money pit is eventually and hopefully excavated. There's a whole host of other theories too, like way, way, way too many. Supposedly a pay ship. A ship filled with money, which had been paid for by the construction of huge fortress of Louisbourg, which had blown entirely off course and run aground. The crew of said ship may have been convinced to hide the contents of the ship in the money pit. This happened between 1720 and 1740, which would line up time-wise. Then of course, there's the potential of William Phipps and the Concepcion. Phipps was sent by the King of England to go and find the Concepcion, a Spanish galleon that was lost and rumored to be filled with treasure. He would eventually return to England with over 68,000 pounds of silver, that's equal to 30,000 kilograms. Phipps was knighted for his efforts and would return to the wreck to pick up the rest of the treasure, only there wasn't much additional treasure found. Could Phipps have moved the majority of the treasure to Oak Island? Historians have plotted Phipps' journey and in 1690, he could have been found attacking Port Royal in Quebec. So he's definitely in that area. Could this treasure be what's hiding at the bottom of the money pen? Another was coined by Franklin D. Roosevelt. Before he was the 32nd President of the United States, he believed that the treasure at the bottom of the money pit was actually that of the missing crown jewels of France. Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette fled Paris in June of 1791. They took with them the crown jewels and gems from their own collection. When Louis and Marie were captured at Varennes, they didn't have any treasure jewels with them at all. The possibility then exists that Marie fled to the fortress of Louisburg and stashed the jewels along the way, namely, in the Oak Island Money Pit. This is two major pitfalls though, no pun intended, well, kind of intended. Would Louis and Marie have enough people to build the Money Pit, and when they have been able to do it while fleeing in 1791 and before its discovery in 1795, then there's also the possibility of the Money Pit harboring Incan, Mayan, and Aztec treasure, missing from St. Andrew's Cathedral. The money pit also might not be a money pit at all and it's just a pumping station for pirate dry docks or the possibility that it's just a natural formation, I mean mother nature does get kinda wild. To wrap up, but maybe most menacingly, there is known to be a curse on Oak Island. The earliest known mention of this curse goes back in 1967 from a magazine publishing. This magazine was called True, the man's magazine, so can't be lying right? The legend says that seven men must die before the treasure can be found, and to date, six have died on the quest to find the treasure. In reality though, this is ludicrous. The True Magazine's article quotes a resident of Nova Scotia, crediting them as a pretty woman intimately related to the deaths. This pretty woman is said to have said to the reporter, Legend says that seven men must die before the treasure will be found. Yes, this is my best pretty woman. One died a hundred years ago when a boiler explosion, now four more are gone. Maybe someone wants that treasure badly enough for two more to die. First off, she's only accounting for the deaths of five people here, glossing over the death of the Kaiser, who fell down a shaft on Oak Island in 1897. Now granted, she might have not known about Kaiser's death, but if there really was a curse that foretold of the deaths of seven men, then surely people would be keeping up with all the deaths and related money pit, pit related, deadedness. How could you forget about one if seven need to die in order for the treasure to be revealed? That's not to mention the fact that there could have been a seventh death already. The Curse of Oak Island TV show that airs on the History Channel, which to date at the beginning of 2022 has aired for nine seasons, may have contributed to the hollowed seventh death. A podcast by History Heretic claims that in 2014, the Curse of Oak Island show producer Matt home passed away and his death was never announced nor reported. So surely, if the curse was true, we should have found the treasure by now. Whatever is going on, countless amounts of money, time, and thinking has gone into the mystery of Oak Island. Whether or not anything is found in the money pit or elsewhere on the island will just require more time and more money. It's doubtful the site will ever just be given up on. It's being excavated ever since it's discovery. Maybe one day we will find out what lies at the 200-foot layer of the pit, but maybe we won't. And of course it's fun to think about and gossip about what's down there and how potentially amazing it could be and where it came from, but the fact that this mystery has consumed people's lives, because uh, people really have lost their lives here, makes it all that more chilling. Whatever does happen in the future, We'll know about it instantly in the age of the internet. Unless, of course, it gets covered up like the mysterious seventh death, because there's that, and a pretty lady might intimately have to describe it to you one day. We don't know. But what we do know is that this is an amazing tale, filled with potential, filled with possible treasure and anticipation. I hope you have enjoyed listening and hearing our strange dialogue and this strange story. Thank you so much.
1: thank you very much super cubby for that i think my favorite part of that story is visualizing what the money pit actually looks like the, the platforms at equal intervals and the damn buoy traps like what these guys were on some serious shit when they were building that thing surely anyway again thank you very much super cubby you can check him out live on twitch most days around 6 a.m in the uk which is like two o'clock in the morning for him he's mad literally mad but he's amazing as well And that's why he's my best friend make sure you give him a follow there at twitch.tv forward slash super underscore cubby that's c-u-b-b-y and links to his other socials and all that stuff will be found there as well there'll be a link in the show notes too now this is where this episode takes a much darker turn This next section is equal parts horrifying, enraging and utterly heartbreaking. This is a story that played out for a lot of people on one very specific social media website in real time. Reddit, of course, it's Reddit, it's always Reddit. It's the story of a guy just wanting to do right by his children in spite of his wife. This is the story of Jason in Hell. Reddit. Reddit touts itself as the front page of the internet. It holds and breeds communities. Are you really into anime? Super into cute animal photos? Really into photoshopping photos of Joseph Gordon-Levitt's face onto giraffes? Uh, yeah, there's subreddits for just about all of those things. There's a subreddit for pretty much everything. Heck, I can remember one time, someone lost a camera so they made a post on reddit in the hopes that someone had found it. Accidentally however, OP, the original poster, had put the post in the subreddit for the Lost TV Show and not Lost Belongings. The craziest thing though, was that someone within the Lost TV Show subreddit actually found this guy's camera. Reddit is so wide and vast, it's even had some horrifying subreddits too. In the last few years they actually banned a bunch of subreddits promoting white supremacy and rightly so. They banned a sub once dedicated to videos and images of people dying as well which was aptly named r slash watch people die and there's been its fair share of very very uh, problematic subreddits such as the um, jailbait one but that was we'll dance around that subject for now. That's probably a whole section of its own. The story that I'm about to tell you today though has nothing to do with any of the bad subreddits and everything to do with real life crashing down around you while talking to strangers that are hiding behind screen names on the internet that just want to help. One of the better subreddits is r slash relationship underscore advice. Posts can range from asking if your boyfriend is cheating to asking how you can treat your wife for all of the good that she does. It's a wide and open community of people that honestly just wanna help. We're gonna talk today about a few very chilling, heartbreaking and sobering posts from one user in particular. It's going to be very, very deep. So trigger warning here. This story involves children. This is the story of Jason in Hell. Friday, October twenty eighth, twenty sixteen, at one forty-three PM EDT. Reddit user Jason in Hell makes a post on R slash relationship advice entitled I'm 30 M, having a hard time coping with my wife, 29F having cheated on me with our neighbor, 51M. Already we know that this post is gonna be a deep one, just from the title alone. I'm now gonna read you the post in its entirety before going over some things in the post and maybe some of the comments that were left by other users. Here we go. It's been 476 days since I confronted her about it. How do I know? Because every time I catch myself thinking about it, I tell myself, it's only been X days, maybe you won't think about it tomorrow. So to go back to the beginning, I had just taken on a new project and new responsibilities at work. I was working a lot of hours, 60 plus per week, and was noticeably stressed. It was in May of 2015 that I noticed that she had added a password to her phone. When confronted about it, she told me it was because she was planning my father's day present and didn't want me to ruin the surprise. About a week later, she came to me and told me that she felt guilty keeping a big secret from me and told me that she was having our neighbour, a contractor, build a home office for me as my present. It struck me as odd as in our six years together, she had never said she felt guilty about anything and always insists that she never regrets anything in her life. Time goes on, her phone is still password protected, and things don't feel right. I see her using her phone and smiling to herself more and more often, but when I ask her what she's doing, she says nothing and puts the phone away. So one morning I wait for her to get in the shower, and I grab her phone before it requires the password. I go through her messages and find that she is texting the neighbour. I'm all covered in frosting, you want to lick it off? There were no other messages to the neighbour, but I found out later that was because she had set up her phone to delete messages after a certain amount of time. I felt uncomfortable with it, but I knew she had a perverted sense of humour and I thought she would never do anything to hurt me. More time goes by and the neighbour is spending more and more time at our house, but the office is being completed slower and slower. I can't help but worry that something isn't right, so I start checking her location using Google Timeline. It was at this point that I realized that there are large gaps in her GPS history because she was turning off her phone's GPS. Fast forward to July and at this point, the paranoia is driving me nuts. So I tell her that I need to install new antivirus software on her phone. While she has it unlocked for me, I install anti-theft software so I can remotely turn the GPS back on and set up AT&T message backup and restore, so I can read all of her text messages from that point on my computer. The next day, my mother asks to spend time with my two kids, so my wife drops them off with her and has the day herself. I watch my wife's activity from work as she spends the day trying to meet up with the neighbor, but is unsuccessful because he is busy with another job site. That night. We get the kids back from my mom's house and we go out to dinner with the neighbor, his girlfriend and his son. My wife and his girlfriend are having a good time drinking, laughing and just joking around. His girlfriend mentions that they should go and see Magic Mike XXL. I say it's a good idea and I'll watch the kids so my wife and her can go. So my wife and her go and the neighbor and I go back to my house so the kids can play video games together. The kids are back in my son's room playing games and the neighbour is sitting across from me on the other couch. It is at this point that my wife starts texting him. She is describing sex acts that she would like to perform with him and he is reciprocating. She tells him to check his Snapchat and at the same time I get a Snapchat from her too and it is her fingering herself in a bathroom stall. They keep talking trying to figure out when they can meet up and have sex. They decide on Monday morning after I go to work So in my head, I had already planned to pretend to leave and circle back to catch them. But then they tell each other that they love each other. And it is all I can do not to leap off the couch and knock him out. But I contain myself and continue reading the conversation unfolding in front of me. Then he tells her, You're my girl now. To which she replies, always have been, ending with him writing and always will be. My wife and the neighbor's girlfriend return from the movie and I ask them, politely, to sit down. I then ask the kids to stay in my son's room and shut the door. I return to the living room and confront my wife and the neighbour. I say, so, you two love each other, huh? My wife goes into full-blown denial mode and the neighbor's girlfriend starts smacking him. I ask my wife if she had been texting him. She says no. So I show her the text messages. She admits to it, but says it was the first time it had gone that far. I ask my wife if she sent him pictures. She says no. So I show her the picture. She admits it, but says it was the first time. I ask her if she's having sex with him, and she says no because i didn't wait to catch them having sex together i didn't have evidence to prove her wrong so that one stayed unresolved i tell her that i'm leaving her she tells me that she will make sure i never see my kids again if i do she planned on using the fact that i had attempted suicide in high school to prove me unfit to have children She continues to say that it was my fault for being so busy with work and stressed out that she just wanted someone she could talk to. Then she gives me an ultimatum to decide what I'm going to do, or she will decide for me. The neighbor's girlfriend starts defending the two of them, saying that it couldn't have been serious if they weren't having sex, and that my wife and I are too perfect together to let this break us up. The neighbors go home, and my wife and I argue for the rest of the night about what we're going to do. We go to bed separately, having not resolved anything. We keep going back and forth on the subject all weekend and finally settle on, we're going to separate temporarily while we figure out what we want. I was going to stay in the house and she was going to take the kids and go to her mom's house. That Monday, I go to work and I get a text from her in the middle of a meeting with my bosses, stating that she had explained things to our kids but that they were upset and I need to explain it to them also. I get home from work to find my kids crying. She had told them that mommy had to move out because dad was mad at her. When my son wanted to stay with me, she told him that he can't. My son put it together that if mommy has to move out because I'm mad at her and he must move out, then I must have been mad at him too. My daughter was crying because my son was. I don't think she was old enough to understand what was happening. It was at this moment that I realized she was going to drag the kids through hell if I left her. So I swallowed my feelings and begged her to stay. She agreed and insisted that I apologize to our neighbor since we were still going to need to hang out with them because our sons are good friends. I hate it, but I do it anyway. We still hang out with them from time to time, and they come to our various birthday and holiday parties. But I do anything for my kids, and I behave civil every time. Things die down for a while. I still think about it constantly. I worry how I can keep from making her so unhappy that she cheats on me again. Then, almost a year from the original incident, around Father's Day again, she sends him pictures again. She claims it was an accident, that she meant to send them to me instead. I don't fully believe her, but I move on anyway. Things have been quiet on that front for about four months now, but I still think about it constantly. This is going to sound stupid, but I feel like I have a part of my brain that I can't shut off, that is always thinking. I used to use that to solve programming problems and it made me very good at my job. But ever since this incident, the only thing it thinks about is her and him and if I did the right thing. My job performance has suffered and I feel like I haven't gotten sleep in months. I'm afraid that after this much time and the fact that I begged her back, that to say that I want a divorce now would only make her more vindictive towards my children and I. I just feel like I've put myself in so deep in a hole that I can never get back out. I haven't really talked to anyone about this. I didn't want to talk to my mom about it because I felt she would treat my wife differently and I didn't need the two fighting any more than they already do. I tried talking to one friend about it, but his advice was to put my trust in God. But that was not much solace for me as I'm an atheist. So, I have... No clue what to do with my feelings, or how to move on from this. It's pretty obvious from this post that Jason is willing to put everything aside for the good of his children, whereas his wife would rather use them as a pawn in her games. It's also very obvious that she's a bit of a pathological liar. Jason confronts her on the texts and she lies until proof is given. She lies about nude photos and videos sent to the neighbour until she's presented with proof. She then denies ever having slept with him and honestly, after just getting caught in two of the biggest lies of your life, you don't really have a leg to stand on anymore. However, she claims that no sex had been had between her and the neighbour and with no proof that that had happened yet. We have to assume that maybe that one was true, however unlikely it may seem. And the fact that the neighbor was able to sit there right by the husband of the woman he was cheating with and send those words to her while he is in his line of sight is just sickening to say the least. You're my girl now? While he's right there? Mr. 51 year old contractor man, you are an absolute piece of shit. Not to mention the fact that Jason knows his wife is willing to use a suicide attempt that happened over 15 years prior as grounds to have him never see his children again is the lowest of the low. After the post was published, the comments started to roll in. The majority of the comments rang out the same disbelief that Jason actually stayed with his wife and told him to collate the evidence and take it to a lawyer. Monsieur Ledoux, you're trying to navigate this alone and you should seek counsel ASAP. You should have done this months ago. Your wife's threats should hold no weight until you can get a professional legal opinion on your exposure in a divorce. You won't be doing your children any favors by remaining in a marriage that is now founded on lies, infidelity and outright bullying. She made you apologize to your neighbor and you did it? Come on, man. You cannot honestly say that you see any sort of future here that isn't a hell on earth for you. So for your sake and the sake of your children, get a lawyer ASAP and follow his directions to the letter. Could have been. I cannot believe you stayed with her. I cannot believe you begged her to stay. I cannot believe you apologized to the neighbor. The Cosmic Serpent. Smack the shit out of that old man. Go to an attorney. I hope you saved all the evidence. And talk about ways to get custody of your kids. Your wife is a twat. RM4M. Oh dear god. If I went through this shit, there'd be a dead neighbor buried in my backyard. All jokes aside, I feel for you bro. And I can't fathom how you must have felt over the past 476 days. It seems your wife didn't even feel all that remorseful she just guilt tripped you into keeping her fuck dude i don't know if i'm in any position to give any advice but dump that bitch man fuck this story is so fucked it's been a year and a bit maybe your kids are older and can understand a divorce i'd fight for custody if i were you you have the evidence prepared to do so good luck man fuck that bitch swill height staying in a marriage for the sake of the kids never works out There is a ton more comments exactly like that. I'll include a link to the archive of this post on comfortanddeathanddarkness.com. Tuesday, November 1st, 2016 at 12.32 PM EDT. Jason in Hell makes another post entitled, Update. I'm taking your advice. This short post reads as follows. Instead of trying to fix something she doesn't want to fix, she has refused counselling several times in the past before this even happened. I'm going to get myself and my kids out. I meet with an attorney next week. Thank you everyone for helping me see how far I had my head up my ass. So after having many, many people give him roughly the same advice, Jason goes ahead and gets into contact with a lawyer. The comments here are again positive. The bum hammer. Thank fucking God. So many guys out here never get their heads out of their ass. Good for you. Find a good woman. They're out there. Monsieur dude. Good for you and good luck. Remember that life on the other side of all of this will be far better for both yourself and your children. And let that hope keep you going when things get rough. Chalkin. I remember you. You're doing the right thing, good luck. My only advice would be not tell her what's going on until she has handed the divorce papers. November 15th, 2016. Jason confronts his wife with divorce papers. Finally, Jason was going to be freed. But this was where the nightmare was about to unfold. The early hours of November 17th, 2016.
0: Montgomery County 911, where's your emergency? In what town? Darlington. Hey, what's going on there? I just stabbed myself and I killed my two children. You stabbed yourself and killed your two children? Mm-hmm. Okay, and what's your name? Brandy
1: Worley. Brandy Worley stabbed herself in the neck and killed her own two children. In a calm and totally emotionless manner, she actually says in the call, My husband wanted to divorce me and take my kids, but I won't let him have my kids.
0: My husband wanted a divorce and wanted to take my kids. I won't want him to have my kids.
1: After just having murdered them. Brandy mentions to the operator that she took a lot of Benadryl and is tired. Eventually this seems to take over as she says that she's tired. And that's when her mother takes over speaking with the operator. This is what we hear at first.
0: Hello? Hi. Oh my goodness. Okay, this is- And you're her yes. mother? Yes, I just- Oh my God, I just got here. <laughs> I can't see my Have you found uh, the children? Just, no. Okay, they said- She said that they're daughter. My daughter! They it's My just... daughter! My daughter! She's dead. I understand you. you have to calm down so I can get hold to you. I've got to you. Um, your daughter said that the children are in the bedroom on the floor. Can you locate them for
1: me? I'm not going to play the rest of the audio. I'll include a link on comfortanddeathanddarkness.com if you really do want to listen to it. But it's just awful. It's the sound of an operator trying to do everything he can. It's the sound of a mother broken with anguish. It's the sound of pure and utter devastation. I can't seem to find the full call anywhere. USA Today has a page on their site dedicated to the full call, but inspecting the page element shows a link to an MP4 of the video which has since been deleted from its host server. So here's what happened on that awful, awful night. Brandy had just got home from watching her daughter's dance performance before visiting a Walmart saying that she was going to buy pipe cleaners for her son's school project. This is actually where she went to buy the murder weapon, a K-Bar combat knife. She then placed the knife inside of her son's room and then told Jason that he was sleeping on the couch that night. Jason refused this though, preferring to sleep in the basement over the couch or their shared bed. Jason went to the bed in the basement, allowing an extra layer between brandy the kids, and Jason. She lured her son into her daughter's bedroom by saying they were going to have a sleepover. This would be when she stabbed them both in the neck before stabbing herself in the neck too. Her daughter was awoken by the repeated sounds of the stabbing of her brother. She asked her mother, what are you doing? And Brandy responded by saying, go back to sleep. She then moved over to her daughter and repeatedly stabbed her too. This would be when she would make the call to 911. Once Brandy's mother was there and found her daughter and then her grandchildren, she made such a noise that it woke Jason up two levels below. Jason would then come across the scene of devastation. Brandy actually says to Jason, now you can't take the kids from me. Brandy after healing from her self-inflicted injuries in hospital, was placed in Montgomery County Jail while she awaited trial. Initially, Brandy pled not guilty and a trial was scheduled. However, in January 2018, Brandy pleaded guilty to murder and on March 19th, 2018, Judge Harry Simus sentenced Brandy Wally to 65 years for the murder of her daughter Charlie and 55 years for the murder of her son, Tyler. Her sentence is 120 consecutive years in prison. And Jason, well, we'll get to Jason in just a second, but their divorce finally went through in March of 2017, one year before she was sentenced for the murders. As you can imagine, this was the most devastating thing to ever happen to Jason. And in an effort to help YouTube superstar Philip DeFranco asked his many, many viewers to contribute to a GoFundMe page in order to pay for Jason's immediate cost of living and to help pay for the funerals of Charlie and Tyler. Over 56,000 US dollars was raised. For a while, that was the end of the story. Until this. After reading this update, the story will end with how all the stories end. Purely because there's no extra words I can add after this. There just doesn't need to be. I've tried recording this script about 12 times at this point, um, and I've had to stop each time. This is a difficult read, so uh, yeah, here we go. At some point, Jason had deleted his Reddit account, Jason in Hell. But he made a brand new one and verified it with the subreddit moderators named Jason in Code. Tuesday, June 22nd, 2018 at 8.33pm ADT. A post would appear on r slash relationship advice entitled an update from Jason in Hell. The first thing you may notice is this is being posted from a different account. I deleted the Jason in Hell account as a knee-jerk reaction to seeing my Reddit post in the news. I guess the first question to answer is how I'm doing, and to that I would say I'm doing well. I have bad days, but I would think that is to be expected. It is just important that I, or anyone going through something, continue to use the support of friends and family, as well as good coping skills to not let myself be completely defeated on those bad days. I won't lie. I struggled to get back to where I am. For some time I refused to sleep because of combination of fear of what I would wake up to and nightmares about that night. For a time I used alcohol to sleep, but my family loved me enough to take it from me before it became a damaging and permanent habit. I was hospitalized because I did have thoughts of ending my life because I missed my children so much. From that I learned that you should never be ashamed of your mental health, and not seeking treatment will only make it worse, not better. We have all heard it, but if you or a loved one is struggling, seek immediate assistance. Your life is too important to throw away in a moment of weakness. By putting off treatment, I only caused everything else in my life to suffer. I lost my job and became reclusive to the house, but don't worry. I have been back to work since December and I have nearly regained my former position and salary. So I'm good and require no assistance. The second question would be, how do I feel about the sentencing? That is something that is harder to answer because no matter what the sentence, nothing will bring back my beloved children. Do I think she should have gotten the death penalty, which Indiana has? No, I do not. She wanted to die, and after 9 years of giving her what she wanted, when she wanted it. I wasn't going to give her another thing. Do I think the life sentence will have any appreciable effect on her? I don't know. One thing she always stressed for the entire time that I knew her was that she lived her life without any regrets. Even after I caught her cheating on me, she continued to say she had no regrets. As for the ex-in-laws, they continue to be a problem to this day. Shortly after everything happened, they changed the locks on the home I was renting from them, with my property still inside. After trying to civilly negotiate the return of the property, it was required that I involve law enforcement. That is an ongoing legal battle. A member of the family accused me of stealing property I had purchased from them prior to the death of the children, and threatened to take action against me unless I paid double what I had already paid them. I alerted the authorities and as far as I know that is resolved. They continued to make visiting my children's grave difficult. During the one year anniversary, they sat in their truck and just watched me the whole time I was visiting the grave. Because of that I don't visit the grave as often as I would like to. If I can impart on you something I have learned through all of this, it is that <clears throat> it is that you should always take the time to be with the ones you love. It doesn't matter if they're asking you to read the Pokey Little Puppy for the millionth time or asking you to play Smash Bros, even though you both know they will wipe the floor with you every time. Just do it because you never know what time will be the last time. Always make sure they know how much you love them i had the fortune that the last thing my children ever heard me say was i love you good night i will see you in the morning and that is the story of jason and hell thank you for listening to this episode of comfort and death and darkness the best friend this episode was super cubby be sure to follow him on twitch.tv forward slash super underscore cubby for a genuinely entertaining watch the host of this podcast is me mr jake gray you can follow me on every platform at mr jake gray follow the show on twitter at comfort and death and on instagram at comfort and death and darkness for the latest updates be sure to visit comfort and death and for images that go along with this episode A link to the post for this episode will be in the show notes. Don't forget, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Podchaser, you can leave us a five-star review if you also want to be my best friend. Thank you very much for listening, and don't forget, the shadows have the best stories.